All right, everybody, welcome one, welcome all, welcome friend and foe, welcome black, brown, yellow, green, male, female, everything in between. We are due for another riveting call-in session. I know this is the thing that you look forward to as the most exciting portion of your weeks. And uh, if we weren't to keep up our consistency, you'd probably fall into a deep depression. And I would have to personally rescue you by playing archives of call-in sessions into your ear to uh, resuscitate you and breathe new life into your body and give you some optimism for the future. Anyway, hello, Richard. <laughs> hey, hey, man. Regulars, man. We got regulars who, who, who live, you know... Because they live and breathe with us, yeah. Yeah, they, they no, rely on us. No, like they rely on us. People. Yeah, we shouldn't, we shouldn't take that lightly. Mm-hmm. Um, okay, so you and I generally agree to bypass the small talk, or at least I sort of unilaterally decree that we're bypassing small talk, or maybe we can interject some in between. But um, first thing to touch on, I guess, even though it wasn't specifically what we had figure we might talk about is this uh, Biden speech. I didn't, uh, I haven't watched the full thing yet, but I did scan some of the quotes and I think I have the thrust of what he said. Um, I do have a particular thought in mind that probably most people who are following the speech would miss, but I'll save that until you give your uh, synopsis of the speech, however much of it you were able to uh, consume. I'm sure you were riveted either way. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, so I listened to, uh, the, uh, uh, you know, it, this thing is weird because it popped, like, usually presidents give primetime speech for, you know, a reason, like, you know, they kill Bin Laden or they have some kind of, maybe some legislation they want to sell or, or something. Um, and I remember there was, during the Trump administration, I think, remember there was a time when you tell me what this exactly was about. Trump wanted to do a primetime address, and, like, the networks, like, agreed they w- they wouldn't cover it because they, like, didn't think whatever he wanted to talk about was uh, sufficiently important. Uh, so, I, I think... I'm this trying to remember now, what was... What was that about? It's, it's, it's some, all those... border immigration thing? Maybe. You know, all... Every uh, kind of transitory Trump controversy eventually just melts into one unified whole in my uh, in my memory. So it's hard to really distinguish between one flare-up and another. But yeah, I think I do recall that happening at some point. <laughs> yeah. But you're right, so- usually, usually if there's an official address that's given by the president in prime time with not a whole lot of notice, although I do think this was announced yesterday or the day before, uh, I don't know, it doesn't really matter, but... If yeah, there's a so, primetime address out of nowhere, it's usually because, you know, the president decided to bomb someplace. Yeah, and this was not and this was nothing. This was like a campaign speech. But you know, the media would, you know, go along with it because uh the you know, their their, their idea is that democracy is really under threat and so he's taking a you know, a stand against democracy. It feels like uh, for democracy. It feels like Biden sort of feels the wind at his back. So, you know, I think thinks I think he thinks this messaging works there was a poll and you know there was a poll showing like uh like uh, a lot of people were afraid of like threat to democracy or uh, you know so there's like polling on this stuff this stuff never seemed that important but uh some people say the 9-11 not the 9-11 the january 6th commission um you know might have might have changed these things which apparently still going on they're apparently going to call newt gingrich um to be interviewed now 
Um, so I think the polls got better. Maybe he just he just thought that this is like a winning message. And he mentioned like uh, he also mentioned uh, the Dobbs decision and um, you know these extremist republic. He kept calling these extremist Republicans who uh, you know who want to take away your right to marry who you want and who you know don't believe in choice. So it was like there was these partisan notes too. I, I said that if he uh, if he stuck to just like election denial, he might have had like he might have had the moral high ground, but no, he had to insert these um, little political things uh, there uh, into it. Um, yeah, so, I mean, I, I, I don't recall if Obama, for example, ever gave a primetime speech in like 2010 or 2014 where he pretty much just laid out the generic Democratic Party case for the midterms. Um, but I would be surprised if he did something at least approximating that. So I wasn't really that taken off guard by Biden delivering this speech. I think it's partially notable because Biden rarely does anything in prime time. Uh, like so, Trump would always at least want to do stuff in prime time because it was when most people would be watching TV. But Biden, you know, basically has his business for the day done by like 4 so p.m. Some, or something and, you know, goes to bed uh, early or whatever. Here's something at PBS. They have a list of all Obama's prime time addresses. Um, okay. So you can like go look at like there's not there's only like five of them. So, so mm. January 28, 2011, the situation in Egypt. Uh, April 2011, last minute deal to avoid a government shutdown. Uh, the May May 1st, 2012, plan to end Afghanistan war. Boston, there's Boston Marathon bombing, launch a military strike against Syria, uh, announcing the end to a government shutdown, airstrikes in Iraq. Um, so this is this is uh, this is all inclusive. This is everything. He didn't give a, he didn't give a he didn't give one in the first three years of his presidency, which seems all yeah, like you're right, he didn't. Uh, no, I mean, that, that actually tracks with my memory. Again, I could be easily forgetting something, but I don't recall by, uh, Obama doing it. I mean, he would give – I mean, obviously, he went around the country no, and campaigned there, in like 2010, right, uh, where he would give a campaign-style speech that basically did something resembling what, what Biden did here. Yeah. But it would just be like, you no, know, but – yeah. So I'm putting a uh, I'm putting a thing in the chat. So there the, there was an Obama controversy where they wouldn't cover his immigration thing in 2014. I, yeah, I do remember that. On the because uh, he, he gave he, uh, he he issued an executive order around the uh, DACA issue, so basically unilaterally granting at least the begin like the, the beginnings of the process whereby certain non uh, citizens could you know obtain citizenship and yeah there was there was controversy over whether or not that merited a prime yeah. time address no not citizenship they just get to stay he couldn't he couldn't do that but yeah they would get to stay by uh, executive order um, but wasn't he, it, didn't yeah. it also like initiate a process or maybe I guess he couldn't do that executive order yeah you're right so it didn't initiate any citizenship process it just kind of enabled them to stay yeah uh, so and Trump yes. never rescinded that, did right? <laughs> wasn't there no, like no, wasn't uh, that? A- he, uh, well, I think this, I think it, it got it, uh, it got struck down in the courts. The Texas, the Fifth Circuit, I think, struck it down. I think it, w- it might have got to the Supreme Court or not. Either it ended at the Fifth Circuit or to the. Well, a lot of people assume that Trump would just rescind that executive order, and he never did. He tried to use it as a bargaining chip with in different negotiations with like with the Democrats in Congress. Yeah, but so, I don't think he ever actually did it. I mean, I could be wrong. Uh, no, it was it was in the courts. So there was, um, yeah. yeah. So it was a court. It was a court thing. Um, no, Trump did. I, I'm I'm, sure, I'm pretty sure I remember that. Let me think. Let me see here. Was said in DACA. Uh, but yeah. So the point is, I mean, this is different though. This is um, 
Wait, the Supreme Court overturned the decision to rescind DACA. So Trump rescinded it in the Supreme And it was a very tech. I remember this was a very technical thing. It was like they didn't go through the right process. Like Trump would like, you know, lose these cases where you would just try to do something, but like they wouldn't go across, you know, across the T's and dot the I's and they would get overturned. So it was like Trump like didn't go through the right process to, to terminate DACA. Um, anyways, uh, so this is, yeah, this is a complicated, convoluted issue. Um, uh, but then, yeah, uh, I, I take I take back my very under researched take on the chronology of <laughs> the legality of DACA. <laughs> yeah, um, and the point the point is this is this one is different because yeah. it's just a midterm pitch. That's all it is. There's nothing in the world right that justifies this. There's no, no piece of news, uh, no bill he wants to pass, no war. Um, it's just him getting up there and making his pitch of democracy, blah blah blah, and extremist Republicans, and you have to vote for me in, in November. Um, well, nothing in the world justifies giving this the status of a primary, uh, yeah, our primetime TV address, unless you actually believe yeah. the purported threats posed by Republicans should they take power and, you know, destroying democracy or whatever. So, like, if you're actually... Like I could see him, I could see like if you pre- like presented this criticism to him. I don't know if he had the mental faculties to actually engage in a back and forth with you, but let's say he could, hypothetically. You might say, "Well, I'm actually ascribing a new importance to campaign speeches of this kind that does make it merit prime time, you know, airing." Does he get? Does he get because, another be- one next week? <laughs> yeah, maybe he's on one every week. Because because you know the the Republican Party is just so newly committed to undermining the very foundations of democracy. Therefore, although in the past it might not have been justified to just do a standard campaign speech in prime prime time, the stakes of this current campaign are so astronomically high that we have to you know do away with old expectations. Yeah. Well, what's the what's the what's the threat to democracy of this one? Because Trump was gonna. I, I guess they're gonna what they're gonna rig the if the Republicans are in power they're gonna rig the twenty twenty four election. How how is democracy how is democracy threatened by this particular election? Well, he's saying you can't be pro insurrection. The, the exact quote he yeah, said this before but, is you can't be pro insurrection and pro democracy. Um, and I don't think anyone is pro insurrection. I don't think many uh, many people. You should just name, well, he's you saying should he's, a, he should have a he, list of the good Republicans and the ones who are okay and the ones who threaten democracy. I think he should we should do that. <laughs> like, yeah, like, well, he's he's trying to he's trying to say that Republicans are right, egregiously he tolerant of like the yeah. Jan, like the like the actual pro January sixth Republicans who remain in the caucus. So if they get into power, you know, even if like Mitch McConnell and Kevin McCarthy are not like overtly pro January sixth or something, they're you know, giving aid and comfort to the actual you know insurrectionists who they harbor in the party. Mm-hmm. So all Republicans are, are guilty of. Uh, at least being sympathetic to ins- insurrectionists, and that's that's the argument. And so until until like Republicans stop doing that, they'll have to lose every election for, for yeah. democracy to continue. One thing I did want to ask you about, and this sort of was not the main thrust of the speech, as far as I can tell, but he did he did mention it, was just the legislative accomplishments of Biden in the past you know year and a half. Because it is true that Biden, including by his opponents of the Democratic primary in 2020 was fairly mirth, mercilessly mocked for continuing to espouse what his opponents would characterize as the antiquated notion that it was still possible to work with Republicans and, you know, on a bipartisan basis, you know, and get stuff done, this whole, 
ori old um, homage to the virtue of bipartisan cooperation and deal making and stuff that was seen to be outmoded that was you know seemed to be you know just far uh, fanciful and Biden was this relic who was trying to resurrect an older era that had been had faded into history because you know the Republican Party was now radicalized or what have you um, but Biden does point out correctly that he has gotten some bills that are fairly significant through the Congress on a bipartisan basis. Um, the, fir- the first big example of that was last fall with this infrastructure bill. You know, it is true that Trump came into office claiming that, you know, he could get stuff done with Democrats because, of course, Democrats also wanted infrastructure and so did he. And then that running joke started of, you know, where every week was infrastructure week and then nothing was ever done on infrastructure because there would always be some other blow up with like Robert Mueller or whatever. Um, whereas, you know, uh, Biden did get a fairly significant infrastructure package done. I mean, you could debate the merits or demerits of the bill. That's not really what I'm focusing on right now, but it, it did pass. And even Mitch McConnell voted for it and, you know, uh, uh, whipped to some degree his caucus in the Senate to support it, and it did, did pass um, over the, the filibuster threshold. Uh, and then, you know, more, more recently there was a bill that was passed around, uh, you know, not a hugely consequential modification to federal gun control law, but they, something was passed, and that was also done in a bipartisan fashion. You know, John Cornyn, the uh, pretty arch-conservative Republican senator from Texas, spearheaded that legislative initiative along with uh, Chris Murphy, you know, the Democrat from Connecticut, and they did pass it, and Biden signed into law. I think a lot of people, if you had asked them two years ago, would have had extreme doubts that a Senate 50-50 margin uh, could conceivably pass any kind of gun control legislation, and sure enough, it was passed. And then just, you know, although this was passed on a party-line vote... Um, he did get like a stripped down version of the whole Build Back Better thing passed this past uh, last month, and that required a lot of uh, you know horse trading uh, that you know played out tediously over the course of months with the, the two holdout senators, uh, Democratic senators that is Joe Manchin and Christian Sinema, but they did get something passed. And uh, I'm raising this not to really debate the merits or demerits of any of those bills, but just to question, or at least to, to float the theory that maybe Biden actually has been, to some extent, vindicated that in his assurances that he would be able to be especially productive in brokering certain bipartisan compromise, compromises legislatively, notwithstanding how uh, you know, relentlessly he was mocked for pledging to do so back during the 2020 campaign. Yeah. So, I mean, I'm not, you know, I'm not, uh, I haven't dug deep into the details of all Biden's uh, uh, spending bills and the climate, the climate bill and all of that. I think he's, but I think from the general outlines of that, he settled, I think he's done something that's sort of the path of release resistance. So when Obama uh, did Obamacare, that, um, you know, that killed Democrats for a while uh, electorally. And it really sort of, uh, it shook things up a bit. It really like, you know, it, it really, uh change the status quo for a lot of people while the the biden bills they see there's nothing like that i mean they seem to you know they're not real they're uh they're not raising the income tax um they're not you know changing people's health insurance um they're not doing like you know they're spending a lot of money and borrowing money to spend it and they're sending all this stuff to ukraine uh but it's not something that's you know immediately noticeable 
um, to most people. And I think if you take that, you know, it's like a sort of a, a different kind of liberalism where you just spend this money. And I don't, you know, I don't know. I'm not going to say it's not. They might, you know, they might be important bills. I don't know about the, um, uh, you know, I don't know about, I don't know about the climate provisions exactly what they do or how effective uh, they'll be. Um, but yeah, and so like the other able, I mean, they're able to do stuff. They're able to spend a lot of money and, and you know, take care of uh, some priorities. So yeah, unquestionably, I don't think, I mean, I don't think he's gone as far enough, you know, for the uh, for the left on these things. Um, I don't think there's, you know, there's no, I, I don't think there's any new. Uh, permanent entitlement program. There's no, you know, like, uh, uh, you know, socialization of an industry or making something free or universal. Um, there's nothing like that. These seem to be sort of, you know, one-off things and, you know, anybody can point to them and say they're accomplishments. Yeah, I don't think he's fully placated the left, right? But there was a period earlier this year, maybe spring into early summer, where you could see the potential beginnings of a semi-organized, left-wing opposition to Biden. Not that it probably would have amounted to much of anything anyway, but part of their uh, complaint was that the legislative agenda was just, you know, totally stalled, right? Um, And Biden had failed to deliver on his core legislative promises. um, And, you know, his whole pretense of being this skilled Senate negotiator who would, you know, been who had marinated for so many decades in the Senate and, you know, that was going to afford him with this unique ability to, to broker compromises. That was all like a, a lie and joke. And, and you could even, there were even points at which, you know, uh, Bernie Sanders would express sort of like cryptic frustration with the administration. He wouldn't outright attack Biden or anything, but he was getting a bit more forceful and expressing his displeasure. And um, now I think, the organized left-wing activist movement, and that's sort of a vague term, but I'm talking here more, sort of specifically about like these like newly radicalized activist formations in Washington, D.C., right, where, you know, they're foundation-funded and stuff, and they can hold protests, like before the bill, this uh, quote-unquote inflation reduction pass, uh, act was passed, which is like the pared down Build Back Better, a few weeks prior to that, some of these activist groups actually held a sit-in, right, at Chuck Schumer's office or something, or they were protesting Democratic senators in the Senate building, which I guess you could call insurrectionary if you wanted to be uncharitable. But, you know, those types of people, and even when I was in D.C., I don't know about you, but the last time I was in D.C. in uh, late July, I would go around and there were these, like, uh, posters that had been hung up, you know, and enjoining Biden to, quote, get climate done right mm. so he did get something done in accordance roughly speaking with what those activists had demanded so i don't think now they would have anywhere they would have as nearly as much of a basis to like overtly oppose biden and might even be more you know pretty actively supportive of him and especially of just democrats in general in congress so uh, i actually do think that you know the this has been fairly politically adroit on Biden's part. Again, leaving aside like any kind of normative questions over whether the legislative items have been good or bad. But in terms of political shrewdness, I think people do tend to underestimate Biden to some extent because he's just so... He appears 
as a personage just to be so feckless and barely in command of his faculties. But I think, ironically, that could be that's oftentimes a politically advantageous distraction that he's able to leverage. So people actually miss how he's fairly, you know, perceptively uh, uh, deploying the, his political muscle. Yeah, so I think he, I think his secret to his success in this is that he's basically he doesn't really have an ideology. I don't think he really. When we look at Biden's speech and we get emotional about it, it's like you know, be kind to each other, uh, democracy. You know, this is not who we are. I think he's a man who's not very, even in his prime, uh, wasn't much of a thinker and you know, the uh, intellectual of any kind, uh, but just like sort of backslapping and being around people. I've always been at the center of where the Democratic Party is. And so if that's where you are, and like you don't really, you know, you're willing to go along with whatever the party, you know, wants to do, but you want to get things done, uh, you you know, you can, you can get things done. I think that's ideal compared to someone like Trump, who's just, you know, an egomaniac and just sort of says whatever he wants. Or you look at someone if it was like Sanders or it was Warren, where you're, you're sort of openly ideological, right? And you, you can rub people the wrong way. I mean, Warren, yeah, these people are critical, like if Warren or, or uh, if Warren or uh, Sanders, like they would be able to negotiate with that. Should I, you know, I don't think that they would, I don't think they'd even have it in them. I, I think it would, that would be impossible. Um, so yeah, I think he's, he's good at politics. I mean, he won the election, he became president. I mean, people don't yeah. think he's some, people think he's just, you know, uh, you know, just drooling on himself. Um, but no, I think he, you know, he became president, and I think he's, I think he's going to run for the re-election, and he's got a good chance of winning. I think people, yeah. still, you know, they're, they're, they're doubting him. And this, this will probably, you know, fade into the memory hole, but occasionally it's worth recalling <clears throat> that Biden was by no means understood to be even a favorite to win the Democratic nomination in 2020. Like people thought it was almost a joke that he could even be competitive, right? Yeah, I remember um, the betting markets. I remember they did not give him much of a chance. I remember I was betting on him early. They, you know, they gave Warren a chance. They, you know, sometimes he, the favorite was who was the favorite? It was I think well, was Bernie like, Sanders was the favorite for a while. It was um, Nate Silver. Nate Silver. I mean, this is seared into my memory. I never fail to remind him of it if if I have the opportunity. But in um, in January of 2019, Nate Silver personally declared Kamala Harris to be the favorite. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Nobody, nobody. Um, yeah, nobody understood just how terrible she was. Um, but yeah, you're you're right. He was. He, if he was the favorite, it was like you know, it was like you know, fifteen or twenty percent, and everyone else had like you know. Warren was the favorite. Warren had a very many, uh, very small surge for a little while, and I remember she became the favorite unpredicted. Yeah, um, and maybe most importantly and interestingly. Virtually none of what I would call the Democratic Party intelligentsia supported Biden in the primaries. I mean, this is yeah. a very underappreciated fact, right? Because, I mean, could you, could you recall like, early in that primary process, like uh, mid-2019 or something, any, like, notable media figures or activist types or others with a significant public profile who were, like, avowed – Biden supporters? There were almost none. Yeah. I mean, like I always, the, the thought experiment I always used at the time was if you anonymously surveyed everyone who works at every, you know, center left to left wing media outlet in the United States in 2019, I'm fairly certain that not one, like so literally zero, would have said that they favored Biden as nominee. Yeah. Um, 
Yeah, I think that's right. And I think people were not very smart because he was um, uh, because he was leading the polls for like a year and people didn't believe he was the favorite. Do you remember? It was like a, a literal a year before the thing started. He was leading the polls. I'm like, look, the guy who's leading the polls for a year is probably going to win. So I remember uh, being, you know, very sort of a big, you know, big believer in Biden's chance. People are making this in that like how often is the guy, how often does a guy stay in the lead for a year and then not be the nominee? It's, it's, it's pretty rare. And then how well, often you know, Bernie, the guy... I mean, in, in, I, I don't want to re- totally rewrite history because I did write pretty consistently that I did, I thought Bernie Sanders was at least like a co-front runner, even times might have been the front runner because you know, remember the first two states were Iowa and then New Hampshire. And then Nevada, actually. And Bernie had really strong built-in advantages in each of those first three states, um, notwithstanding the national polling lead that Biden did, did have. Because remember, all throughout 2000, the 2008 primaries, Hillary Clinton at times had like a 30 or 40-point lead in the national polls over Obama. But because Obama won Iowa... Yeah. Which was this, you know, seen as this historic event because it was this all white caucus that then, you know, a black man wins. And, um, you know, then when South Carolina and stuff, you know, that did change the complexion of the race very significantly. And I thought there was, could have been something similar with, with Bernie in exposing the weakness of, of Biden. So, in other words, you know, the national polling lead was not going to be a determinative. And actually, Biden's national polling lead was never like overwhelming. In 2019, it was, you know, sometimes it would fluctuate, but probably was, you know, highest at like 10, 15 points or something. It wasn't, you know, uh, insuperable. Um, So, yeah, anyway, I don't know why why we're uh, recounting all this, but it just goes back to Biden actually being somewhat shrewd and now having this curious, ironic advantage of people assuming that he's totally mentally decrepit, which I don't really deny. You just have to watch his performance. Uh, But that unduly shaping their perception of him as this total incompetent. And uh, I don't really think that's the case. And there's another thing that I I noted, at least reading the synopsis of this um, speech that he delivered, that he would have been mocked for in the past, but now actually might be politically shrewd, is Biden continues to try to distinguish between what he calls MAGA Republicans and like ordinary Republicans. So he said, Mm -hmm. quote, in the speech, uh, quote, not every Republican, not even the majority of Republicans are MAGA Republicans. Not every Republican shares their extreme ideology. So he's basically inviting you know, responsible Republicans to join the Democratic Party coalition. And I don't, if you recall, back in 2016, Hillary Clinton had a much, uh, much the same approach, right? Because she thought that the um, extreme kind of quality of Trump's character would be sufficient to repel enough Republicans that if she went out of her way to court Republicans, so-called moderate Republicans, you know, in the suburbs or whatever, then that could be an electorally winning strategy. And uh, I pulled up a quote that was roundly ridiculed at the time from Chuck Schumer. And here's what he said in July of 2016. Quote, for every blue-collar Democrat we lose in Western Pennsylvania, we will pick up two moderate Republicans in the suburbs in Philadelphia. And you can repeat that in Ohio and Illinois and Wisconsin. Now, Schumer was ridiculed for making this statement because it wasn't borne out in terms of resulting in a Hillary Clinton victory in 2016, but the trend he's identifying there has held. 
right? So a lot of affluent, in two, if you look at the election results in 2020, a lot of the affluent suburban areas that had previously leaned Republican, sometimes by very substantial margins, even as recently as like 2012 when Romney was the nominee, a lot of those areas very drastically flipped and um, had gotten to a point by 2020 that it actually did electorally compensate for this huge erosion of Democratic support within, you know, the working class white areas, quintessentially, as Schumer put it at the time, like Western Pennsylvania. Um, so, I mean, Schumer, Schumer might have not have been immediately correct in his forecast for how that strategy could, you know, make sure that Hillary Clinton won the election, but he was potentially correct in, in, in you know, seeing the longer term trend. And uh, I'm not so sure that it's going to be, you know, I, I probably would have mocked it at the time as well. But, you know, thinking about it more, I'm not so sure that this, you know, emerging Democratic Party coalition, which increasingly is, revol- you know, revolves around affluent suburbanites, you know, I'm not so sure that it, it necessarily spells electoral doom for them. If anything, you know, maybe it's a decently advantageous strategy as much as I might object to it substantively or, you know, normatively. Yeah, I mean, these people, I mean, could move in the other direction. It's not a permanent thing, right? They could vote for Glenn Youngkin in, in Virginia. I think that what happened was, I think the, um, the Dobbs decision and then uh, Trump coming back in the news, I think might have given the Democrats... Uh, the advantage here, and I think you might be in a situation where Republicans have all the disadvantages of Trump going into this election without any of the advantages of Trump because he's not on the ballot. Uh, meanwhile, the people who the, he turns off are like highly educated and are probably um, going to vote in the midterm. Uh, and so, yeah, it, it's you know the shifts. There, there are no, I mean, there are no permanent uh, majorities or coalitions here. Um, if they do well um, in this midterm, and the midterms are usually rough for the uh, incumbent uh, in, a, in a first term, um, they will, you know, they, they will have gotten lucky. Uh, things would have really come together because it didn't look like it was going to be like that. Uh, but still, there's uh, there's still you know, two months to go, and who knows if even the polls will be right. Uh, yeah, so it'll yeah. be interesting. We'll see. And this is some pretty uh, basic, you know, in the basic bitch sense punditry. But, you know, I, I don't I can't really dispute what seems to be now be the consensus that Democratic the Democrats fortunes are rising somewhat in the midterms. And it's for reasons that everybody can pretty much you know ascertain. You know, inflation is seems to be cooling off somewhat. Even gas prices I saw today I was out where, you know, you can uh, you know, it's like three seventy five now in uh, New Jersey, which is like almost a uh, dollar and a half off the high of like May or whatever. Um, so that's definitely noticeable. Um, but then also, it is sort of interesting because if the Democrats do well in this midterm, it would be extremely unusual per historical trends. I mean, it's happened before. In 2002, uh, the Republicans overperformed relative to historical uh, expectations, in part because, you know, Bush was just anomalous, anomalously popular post 9 11. And um, that kind of transferred over into Republicans having, um, you know, doing much better than you would expect just generically in that year's midterm. Um, but 
Not only that, the reasons why Democrats would apparently overperform in this election are also extremely unusual. Number one would seem to be that a former president still seems to get more media oxygen than the current president. <laughs> so, like, every time – I mean, I'm, I've almost stopped parodying this because it's beyond parody. But like, every time – I dare you. Go on to the – I do this on occasion. I can't help myself. Go on to the CNN YouTube page and just look at the recent videos – and it's like it's like eighteen out of twenty videos are about Trump, like always. Now you you know a year and a half after Trump's out of office, and uh, so that's not something we really have much experience with in in modern history, where you know like attitudes toward a former president are perhaps dictating voting behavior more than attitudes toward the current president. Um, and also, you know, you would expect that there would be the most energized activists. And, uh, you know, momentum would be around the opposition, right? Like there's something reminiscent of the Tea Party in 2009 would be like the dominating force right now. Uh, but I guess because of the Supreme Court decision uh, around the abortion and due in the, the, the constant, you know, hyping of this existential emergency around Trump, it could be the, de- the Democrats are still, you know, the activist core of the Democratic Party is still more energized than the activist core of the Republican Party, and I think that might also have something to do in particular with Biden because Biden is just not – like whenever Fox News or something or these conservative media outlets try to drum up outrage about Biden personally, it always strikes me as falling a bit flat. Like they're trying to get people really exercised about hating Joe Biden. I mean they could do it easily with Hillary Clinton, right? And they could even do it to some degree with Obama. But with Biden – I don't know. It's just, he's just not a natural target for this extremely outsized, personalized contempt. And so maybe that somewhat deflates that activist energy as well. I, I don't know. Yeah, I mean, it's funny what people, what angers people. I mean, the, Ob- the Obama hate, I think, was partly racial. I mean, I don't think, I, I think liberals are right about it because it was so anti-Muslim too. Yeah, even though he wasn't a Muslim, but that's what <laughs> I, know, but that's I actually I actually think it was more about an, more anti-Muslim than racial. Yeah, but um, yeah, yeah. I mean, but yeah, I, I think it's sort of both and anti-foreigner yeah. too because he had a foreign yeah. background. So it was it was every just everything came together. Plus being like super educated and elite. So like they just you know they, you just came together, and so you have this you know you had this, and then you had uh, uh, Hillary. Which you know is a very unlikable person, and people say you know sexism, but you know she's just unlikable. Uh, Kamala is is pretty much the same. If Kamala was president, um, and you're right that Biden doesn't have any of that. I mean, their obsession with Hunter Biden, you know, they're they're more interested in Hunter than they are with uh, than they are in, in Joe. Um, and this is why he's a good cat. I mean, this is why he became president. And this is why uh, he's had, you know, a pretty successful presidency for someone who's got a, basically a tied Senate. Um, uh, so yeah, that, that's, that's the benefit. I mean, that's the bet. You want to run people who are not, you know, you want to energize people on your side, but you want to not energize people on the other side. And it's like, whatever you pick someone who energizes your side, you always have like that effect. Right. So if you pick someone who sort of is not exciting to you, they're probably not going to be exciting um to to the opposition and with biden i think it's you know it's in they've achieved some kind of, you know the a, a decent balance there yeah and you saw this sort of play out in miniature in the this alaska special election yesterday where you know there's <laughs> for for a, a time in american politics there was no 
bigger lightning rod of a political figure than Sarah Palin. And I guess, you know, that has to just dissipate somewhat over the years. Didn't she do like Dancing with the Stars or something and became like a She did uh, the mask, show star? Masked Singer. Oh, okay. You sang Mr. Mix-a-Lot. Oh, right. Yeah, how could I forget? Um, <laughs> and, uh, you know, you think that uh, the Republican would be a shoe-in in a special election in Alaska, you know, under pretty much any circumstance, right? And although there were some quirks around the ranked choice voting in Alaska, I do think it's probably fair to preliminarily extrapolate that, that a Democrat could win a special election in Alaska after Repub the Republican incumbent who's, who died this year had held that seat for 49 years. Um, you know, whatever, whatever new electoral uh, mechanisms have been imposed in Alaska, it is at least some tentative, tentative evidence that yeah, Democrats are not in the position that you would expect them to be in historically right now. So anyway, it's just sort of that's just sort of uh, empty pundit pontificating on my part. I think the Republicans co combined got like sixty percent of the vote in the first round. Yeah, the they did. Time. I tallied that up. Like so, if if you the, of the three remaining candidates when it went to this runoff, there were two Republicans and one Democrat. So you know the Republicans basically split among people who liked Palin and didn't like Palin. And um, but if you had added the Republican vote totals up, it would have been you know about sixty forty in terms of uh, the Republican getting more votes. So you know sixty forty would have been way more than even the incumbent Republican congressman who died, Don Young, had gotten in the past several cycles. So it doesn't necessarily mean anything in terms of the larger trends in the country. Um, but I don't know. Part of me does. The, there was also that special election in um, New York in a sort of an even partisan area last week where um, the Democrat won sort of against expectations. Um, so, yeah, maybe it's... Uh, it's fun because, yeah, yeah it's, it's mass psychology. I mean, you're always thinking mass psychology, like, will these masses of people who are barely paying attention, you know, show up and in what patterns and in which parts of the country and, you know, on which side will they show up? So you're always sort of guessing. You have these um, special elections. where So the people who vote in November, it's going to be a bigger... Um, crowd than the people who vote in any of these elections, right? Um, yeah. Because these are special elections, and you might think, well, the Democrats sort of, maybe the people who are angry about Dobbs, they lean very high, you know, highly educated, and they're coming out for, like, these very strange elections, right? And so it could be a completely different thing in November. It might be an indication of what's going to happen in November. It, it might not be. I mean, we just, we just don't know. Um, and so, yeah, that's what makes it, that's what makes it fun. Yeah, I mean, that's the thing that you know, having lived through now several midterm cycles as a conscious adult, there were like, you know, before the 2010 midterms, you know, Scott Brown won a special Senate election in Massachusetts to replace Ted Kennedy, right? That was a, sort of a shocking result for a Republican to be elected in Massachusetts, you know, to say nothing of replacing Ted Kennedy. Um, and, uh, you know, in the, before the 2018 midterms, you had a special election in Alabama where Doug Jones, a Democrat, won. And that was also fairly shocking for a Democrat to win in Alabama. And both of those, you know, were harbingers of how the midterms would un unfold, you know, several months later in that, you know, the Democrats, you know, in keeping with the Jones result in Alabama, did fairly well in, in the 2018 midterms, especially in the House. And um, Republicans swamped the Democrats to an astronomical degree in 2010 
in the midterms, and there aren't really any results to point to in this cycle that suggests an imminent Republican romping. Now, it could still happen, but it would be a bit anomalous in that there aren't really the same kind of electoral uh, harbingers as there have been in previous cycles. Yeah, there was a little, I mean, it was start, It was the Dobbs decision, because before Dobbs, um, Republicans were actually doing okay in the special election, and after, I mean, I think that, that, that changed. So I think there's data on this. So it might have it changed the, and also, I mean, it's, kind of, it's been conflated with, because there was also... Um, that was the height, you know, before the Dobbs decision or around that time, that was the height of um, uh, gas prices and inflation, right? Um, and so, you know, the economy got better too, but there, but there seems to be something, there seems to be something more. Um, and it does seem, you know, it does seem the Dobbs decision might have made a difference in whether it's going to hold to the, uh, to the midterm, you know, that's just something we'll have to see. Yeah. Anyway, okay, let's move on from our uh, basic bitch punditry to our uh, wheelhouse of Ukraine prognostication, which I guess is also punditry in a sense, but maybe not quite as basic. Um, so well, we both read this foreign affairs essay uh, co-written by uh, Fiona Hill, who is this, you know, longtime, you know, Russia analyst who thinks that she has somehow psychoanalyzed Putin and has access to his brain and stuff. And she was, you know, she was in the Trump administration for a while and then, you know, became this, media darling because she testified in the uh, first Trump impeachment and was basically condemning Trump for having, you know, violated sacrosanct official U.S. foreign policy, even though he's the democratically elected president and therefore essentially unilaterally makes foreign policy. But according to Fiona Hill and the people who are valorizing her, U.S. foreign policy is actually something that exists in a vacuum. And a, and a Republican, or a, rather a president, can can fail to uphold it in such an extreme fashion that it warrants his impeachment. Um, but anyway, she has a, an essay out, and a lot of it is a bit boilerplate, just in terms of you know putting out the most, I would say, uh, uncharitable characterization of Putin and his designs and what have you. Uh, but this was a, a fairly widely commented on. It seems to me the most instructive part of the essay and therefore the one that was like oddly buried um which was that fiona hill at least purports to have done a bit of original reporting um you know almost you know 75 percent through the essay where she says according to multiple former senior u.s officials we spoke with in april 2022 Russian and Ukrainian negotiators appear to have tentatively agreed on the outlines of a negotiated interim settlement. Russia would withdraw to its position on February 23rd when it controlled part of the Donbass region and all of Crimea. And in exchange, Ukraine would promise not to seek NATO membership and instead receive security guarantees from a number of countries. Now, uh, I happened to be on a call earlier today, which is sort of unusual for me to do two in a day, because I, I was filling in for a Glenn Greenwald. So sorry if anybody listening to this has heard a variation of my spiel before. But... Wouldn't it be nice to know if, as Fiona Hill seems to suggest, the U.S. like actively did, in fact, scuttle or veto a potential ceasefire agreement in April of 2022? Like, shouldn't we get that on the historical record? <laughs> so, you know, the, the moral implications can be sussed out. Where, well, she, and, didn't and say, it, she didn't say that. She, she didn't say that, right? 
didn't say no, she didn't. Me. She didn't. But that's what it seems to imply because she's getting this information from U.S. officials, and then she says in the next paragraph, back you know, speaking in her voice, at any point, negotiations with Russia, if not handled carefully and with continued strong Western support of Ukraine's defense and security, would merely facilitate an operational pause for Moscow. So she seems to be speaking on behalf of. Maybe I'm reading too much into it. I mean, correct me if I'm wrong. But she seems to be speaking on behalf of the U.S. officials she spoke to anonymously who are saying that any agreement at, at all would have been untenable at that point because it just would have been an operational, operational pause for Russia and allowed them to regroup and then launch even greater you know, military offensives. Uh, but either way, I want to know – okay, so let's say it wasn't – we can't prove at this point, which we can't empirically, that it was U.S. officials who somehow vetoed this – Perspective uh, ceasefire agreement. What happened that caused the agreement to fall apart? I mean, we still don't exactly know. And I thought and, she heavily implied um, yeah. that it was the Russians who wanted more Terry, right? But but then he says this after she says the uh, the the deal. She says, but as Russian Foreign Minister Sergey Lavrov stated in a July interview, the compromise is no longer an option. Even but was it an Russia option in April? <laughs> I don't. I, I don't know. Like I guess Lavrov decided in April, maybe that he didn't want to do it, and then July. So I, I think it's that's the strongest implication there. Um, the idea is that Russia will not. Think, now I don't know exactly what happened there. She doesn't. Um, she doesn't say. You're right. She doesn't uh, say, and so it's consistent with the U.S. Told her it's. A consi- I mean, it's consistent with anything. I mean, there's no clear well, uh, sign of what happened. Well, what happened during that period was. You know, Russia did withdraw from northern Ukraine, right? Around they, they kind of aborted this apparent attempt to encircle Kiev. They said it was a gesture of goodwill that they were going to be withdrawing to other parts of Ukraine. And, you know, goodwill in service of brokering some sort of ceasefire agreement, right? Um, at least if you take what they were saying at face value, which you shouldn't do, but that's what they said. Um, and... When there were media reports, this was like late, Mar- uh, late March, early April, that a breakthrough in these negotiations was potentially in the offing, something really amazing happened. Um, and I say amazing in like a perverse sense, which is that the, the, all the top, all the senior most officials in the U.S. government sprung immediately into action, like uh, – both Blinken, Secretary of State in Austin, the Secretary of Defense, simultaneously moved to cold, throw cold water on the idea that any negotiation could result in an actual ceasefire, right? So they, they seem to, in concert, undermine the very notion of a, of a, of a, of a settlement being viable. Um, and then what was the real turning point apparently was this, you know, incident in Buka where there was all of a sudden one morning. And again, maybe I should, shouldn't have to make this caveat, but I'm not denying that atrocities occurred in Buka. Right. But I am recalling that there was a very concerted PR effort in conjunction with those events in Buka that was then amplified throughout the U.S. media and political establishment to say that, look, this is evidence that this, you know, Putin is this, you know, unreconstructed genocidal tyrant. And, of course, in light of that, no negotiation can, can happen. 
Um, like, so, you know, other, cause you can't compromise with like Hitler, right? I mean, Biden at that point had already called him a war criminal, said he was committing genocide, etc. Um, so, uh, I mean, would it be surprising if the U.S., you know, as, as like a prime mover here from the outset, played a role in scuttling this potential agreement, which Fiona Hill seems to be reporting was actually far more tangible than, you know, you might have thought? So, uh, there's, is this newspaper Ukrainian Pravda, is it, uh, is that credible? Yeah, I mean, they're, and they're the ones who report on the Boris Johnson thing, right? Yeah, yeah. So Johnson, they say, scuttled, uh, told them to uh, pressure them, right? So that's, that's from right. Ukrainian Yeah, with the, tacit, with the tacit blessing of Biden. Yeah, but I mean, I don't know. Like, I don't know if they can, you know, like, I, I don't think the Ukrainians, I mean, if the Ukrainians wanted peace, like, are they going to keep, you know, if, if they really want the war to end, are they going to keep fighting because Biden and uh, Johnson, uh, I don't know if they could make them make peace, but I don't think they could force them to fight a war. They don't want to, they don't want to fight that seems. Well, if Biden and Johnson uh, say, look, if you, if you agree to a settlement at this juncture, we're going to cut off arms shipments or, you know, you're, you're, the support that we're pledging to you is in jeopardy. Well, I mean, is it, is it really, is it really unfathomable that that could have had an effect in their calculus? Well, I mean, the support, the point of the support is to fight the war. So if they have a, if they have an agreement not to fight the war anymore, uh, you know, potentially I think it would, you know, that, that might not matter. Um, yeah. What do you make of it then? (laughs) I, I, I don't, well, I don't know. I mean, it could have fell apart for any number of reasons. I mean, it could have been because of the, uh, you know, who knows if that reporting is true? I mean, it could be. You know, the Ukrainians might have not wanted peace. The Russians might have not wanted peace. I, you know, I have no idea. But the idea that the Ukrainians wanted peace, but then uh, the reporting does suggest the Ukrainians wanted peace, but the you know U.S. and uh, the U.K. didn't want them to. I believe. I mean, I believe it in the case of. Um, you know, I, I would. I, you know, it's easy for me to believe the U.S. and uh, the U.K. wouldn't want because uh, Boris Johnson and. Uh, the Americans, I mean, they seem crazy. They seem to want to fight Russia forever. Like, I, I, I don't doubt that that, I don't doubt that they would have told them that. Um, but I, I don't think, I, I think it only would have worked if Ukraine themselves wanted to keep fighting because I don't think Ukraine would. I mean, there's there's real questions about if Zelensky can make peace, right? I mean, like, a lot of people say he's trapped by these nationalists so he could basically uh, get killed if he makes a peace. And this was a problem before the war, and it's even more of a problem uh, during the war. So, like, what Zelensky had been able to make peace in in April. Uh, I don't. I don't know. Like, would, would would he been able to give? He would have. They would have left Russia in uh, uh, Crimea and um, you know the pre February twenty third borders. Um, you know, it, it wouldn't have solved anything. I mean, like that. The, I think the deal probably wouldn't have solved anything. I mean, it probably fell apart because like it wouldn't have solved anything because there, there still would be this dispute over these regions, right? Ukraine is Ukraine is going to say, you know, we. You know, Russia, you know, Ukraine's going to say we're going to lose our guarantee. Russia's going to say we have this territory now. We don't want to give this up, right? Kersaw to the south. Um, so I think most likely just either side thought it made sense for them. Uh, what, what have you seen on the uh, Kersaw offensive? Yeah, I was actually just going to, I was actually just going to ask you that very question. You know, uh, can you hear me? Yeah, yeah, go ahead. Oh, okay, sorry. I thought I cut off or something. Um, yeah, you know, I, uh, <laughs> I'm trying to reserve judgment on any of the tactical progress one way or another because it's such a you know distorted unreliable information environment more so now than even at earlier points in the war it seems like for one thing 
the Ukrainian defense ministry explicitly banned reporters from traveling to parts of the country where this offensive is supposedly underway. Um, I mean, they had done that in an earlier phase of the war, but I don't think it was as formalized. Like it took a handful of reporters who had a degree of independent judgment to relay that there had been these massive restrictions imposed on their access to, you know, important areas that could give insight into like what the status of the war was. Um, so in, in light of that, like in light of that huge obstacle to really ascertaining anything in terms of the actual progress of the supposed counteroffensive, what I'm sort of left to do is to more evaluate the political dimension of this supposed counteroffensive. And this is a thought I kind of landed on in the earlier column that I did today with uh, Greenwald, uh, for Greenwald. So again, sorry if I'm repeating myself, I'll try to add also, uh, more thoughts as I, they occur to me. Um, but it does strike me that even the term counteroffensive which was, you know, it's sort of unusual because Ukraine supposedly telegraphed that they were going to launch this counteroffensive for like weeks, if not months, right? And also, and if you follow the daily chroniclers of, Ukraine, of the war updates, it almost became a running joke that, you know, the, the uh, counter, Kherson counteroffensive was like this uh, figment, right? Uh, but now they, they've supposedly launched it and... The term counteroffensive almost has embedded within it this implication that the tide has turned, right? That they're going on the offensive, that the wind is at their backs, right? And you could see them using the fact that a, or using the claim that a counteroffensive is underway to uh, undergird their forthcoming calls for additional arms supplies, right? And additional war funding. Because we're reaching a point where in the relatively near future, Congress is probably going to have to pass another appropriations bill because that $40 billion package, or at least the portion of it that was you know, uh, allocated for direct funding of Ukrainian war efforts, I think that's coming fairly close to being depleted, at least, or at least we're getting to the point where Congress is probably going to have to at least begin to consider an, an, an additional package. So you could easily see the, the political argument being that, look, Ukraine says it's now engaged in this heroic counteroffensive. So they're showing their durability. They're showing their resolve. They're showing that they have the wherewithal to uh, turn the tide of the war. And therefore, it's all the more vital that we continue to keep the money spigot open. Um, now, is... That is that political. Does that political sort of logic mean that there isn't actually something significant happening happening tactically? No, I mean there does appear, as limited as the information we have is, there does appear to be something that's significant happening happening tactically, but we don't know like what the actual uh, contours of that are. So you know the the thing that's actually within my ability to to assess to some degree is the the political sort of a component here. And it, it seems like the, the logic that they could use, or that could be used to, to justify, you know, further U.S. Uh, entanglement is, is pretty, pretty obvious. 
Uh, yeah. So the, I mean, the one thing I read that seemed to be, uh, you know, was pretty good, pretty good reporting was the um, well, there was a Wall Street Journal story on this, and it was yeah, you know, I did just see that. Yeah, and then the basic takeaway from that is it's very, very bloody. There's some progress on the Ukrainian side, and so you have to you figure this must be the best case scenario for the Ukrainian side, right? There, it's you know they're losing a lot of men, um, and they're making some kind of progress. So that's the story. Apparently, there's Russian military bloggers um, who say that you know at least on one front the Ukrainians have advanced, um, and I you know I read about these people through the uh, uh, Institute for Study of War website who repeat on the Russian military bloggers who are like pro Kremlin and more. Uh, more, to, you know, they tend to be more, uh, you know, very hawkish, um, very, uh, very in favor of the war. Um, so, yeah, that's that's what it is. I mean, it's gonna like, you know, the question is, is it gonna? I, there's no, you know, it seems like the Ukrainians believe there's gonna be a war of attrition and it's gonna be, you know, bloody. Um, and the question is, how long uh, can they maintain that? The the American aid running out. Uh, you know, are you? Um, uh, what do you base that on? Because you know it's, it's interesting to sort of it's interesting to sort of think about what the status of that is. Well, I'm basing it on I, w- I don't have a, I could look up the figures real quick, but you know the, there was that forty billion dollar package passed in May, right? Uh-huh. And only a certain percentage of that package was actually dedicated to direct funding of you know you armaments for for Ukraine, right? Or to um, it's like a, a more or less a direct transfer. Uh, another percentage of the package was for replenishing the U.S. stockpiles because Biden had invoked this uh, authority where he could transfer weapons in the U.S. stockpiles to Ukraine that you know didn't require additional expenditure. Right. Um, so you know, given the given the steady pace of these. Disbursements of, of, of so-called aid packages, including you know last week to mark Ukrainian Independence Day, they gave a, one that was almost three billion. Um, it seems like the funds could at least be running somewhat low in terms of what was dedicated specifically to these direct provisions. So, I, 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 and I, you know, Lindsey Graham has even talked about how you know by the fall there will have to be a new package, and it, you know he of course thinks it should be passed. So you know that that debate is probably going to restart. Somewhat soon, you know, once Congress reconvenes, and I, I'm just sort of curious to see how the success or lack thereof of this supposed Herson offensive might factor into the calculus of whether you know members of Congress might be somewhat on the fence or you know losing a bit of the conviction that was you know running hot earlier on in the war. Uh, you know, if it could affect whether they think that this is a uh, worthwhile investment. Yeah, that's interesting. I don't know the structure of the, um, you know, maybe it's maybe it's a kind of thing where, you know, they give them the high bars and they give them, you know, some things and then they just have to, it's cheaper. I think the Ukrainian, I think the Ukrainian will get their, the Ukrainians will get their support. I, it just, the question is, do they have an unlimited supply of men uh, who are willing to, you know, undertake these very costly and uh, offensive in terms of lives lost, right? I think there, you know, there's not an unlimited amount of, uh, uh, you know, manpower there. I mean, there's like, you know, there's some, you know, there's, you lose the Azov battalion, you know, it's not like there's, you know, and so, you know, that, that I think is the, that I think is the question. Um, and then Russia is apparently still advanced, making some advancements in the, uh, in the East. Um, mm. So that's, that's going on. 
uh, too. But ha- have you seen um, a- Adam Tooze's um, Substack from like this last week? No, send that to me. I'm actually reading his book right now on um, uh, the Great Delusion um, on the uh, end of World War One into the interwar period. Have you read that? Uh, no, no, I haven't. I, I haven't read his books. Um, I know he has one on the uh, political economy of Nazi Germany, right? I want to. I want to read that. Um, oh no, but, sorry, I, I misstated the title. It's called The Deluge. I mixed that okay. up with Delusion. Um, it's it, it's really good. I mean, it's a lot of. Uh, yeah, but he's um, he's very good. He's very good yeah. on the um, uh, on these economic stuff. So basically, you know, I'll. I'll um, here, let me like pull it up now. His, um, you know, his argument is basically that there's, you know, the um, like Russia, you know, it's got economic problems, but it's trying to weather the storm. While on the Ukrainian side, everyone agrees, like this is really, it's in really, really bad shape. Um, mm-hmm. You know, it's basically it has, it, it, it doesn't produce anything anymore. Um, didn't have, you know, the, you know, there's uh, it, Russia has uh, taken over. You know, the Donbass region has a lot of the um, the most valuable sort of manufacturing. It's the manufacturing base, the you know mining. Uh, you know, you have the nuclear power plant, the Zaporizhia nuclear power plant is is like the second biggest in Europe. So it's a very detailed. Um, it's a very detailed story of basically how Russia's uh, um, uh, how Russia is uh, waging a sort of a you know somewhat successfully. Uh, economic, you know, uh, a war of sort of economic strangulation of Ukraine. And, you know, he relies on a lot of, uh, um, you know, he relies on a lot of, like, you know, the economists, mainstream media. So he's not going out there and going to look at crazy sources. I mean, this is basically a consensus of what's happening in Ukraine. And so, you know, the question is, you know, will this country just be able to function like normally, right? Will it have enough troops? Will it have manpower? Even if it gets the military aid, there's a lot that can, uh, that can go wrong. The Russia thing is, you know, interesting because it's like, you know, you can imagine them having problems, but there's no, I think, real possibility of a collapse. I think if it, um, I think if it gets bad enough, they could, you know, they could just pour tons and tons of more money into the military. And people, I, I posted the Adam Tuesday thing, by the way, but they, uh, you know, there was, there was talk at the beginning of this stuff that like Russia couldn't service planes anymore. So their domestic flight industry would shut down. Like, None of that stuff happened, and I think that over time, like the markets are going to adjust, and they're going to be able to get, um, uh, they're going to be able to, uh, um, you know, they're going to be able to sort of find replacements for everything that they need. Um, so yeah, I, I I don't know. I think this I think this Kherson offensive sort of has to go well because if it doesn't, I don't think time is on the side of the Ukrainians. The war, there have always been these snippets of news reports that circulate about how, you know, Russia is supposedly running out of missiles or they're running out of this material or that or, you know, their their um, their manpower is depleting or they've lost morale. And, you know, in isolation, none of these claims ever seem particularly implausible. Like it always seemed possible. Yeah, they're, they're running low on Artillery, I think even that was claimed at one point. Um, but at a certain point, you notice a pattern <laughs> where it's just these like an, uh, anonymously sourced claims about the supposed, you know, depreciating status of the of, of Russian military readiness that don't seem to be particularly borne out in what's going on in the war. Or at least like, there's no obvious connection between these forecasts that, you know, are usually sourced to anonymous, you know, Western officials of some kind who obviously have a vested interest in portraying a certain uh, narrative. And, um, 
and the the actual abilities of or the actual you know reserves uh, resource wise or manpower wise of, of the Russian military. So I, I I even saw like one of these little reports just in the past week where you know they're you know supposedly running low on certain key supplies and this is always a critical turning point. I mean. Every, every week supposedly has been a critical turning point and it's going to show that Russia doesn't have the capacity to you know, achieve its strategic objectives. And so like how, how – how, uh, at what point do you just start dismissing those warnings or those like you know, projections out of hand? Yeah, I mean there's political realities here. I mean Ukraine gets a lot of support. But if you look at like the difference in the size of the economy between Russia and Ukraine and it's grown, grown much longer because the, the damage to Ukraine – economically is much higher than russia so if like ukraine i don't know the exact numbers but if russia had like you know six times the economy before the war it's probably has 20 times the economy now right it's like it's not even it's not even uh they're not even in the same ballpark of where the war started um so yeah i mean i think that this is this is bad this is bad for ukraine i mean like you know the just the this country is this country i mean has like gone backwards like you know Decade. I mean, I, well, in the case of Ukraine, if you went backwards decades, they actually would be better off because they were. They were. Their, I think their GDP was like higher in 1990 than like you know up until recently. But you know, and like for a normal country, it would have been going back you know decades and decades. Uh, they've lost a lot of their population. They're going to lose a lot of men. They've lost the infrastructure. They lost a lot of the manu- you know the ma- uh, the manufacturing base. Um, it's weird how like all these people who love Ukraine like don't like see any urgency to like you know they don't care if this continues for another five ten years right I mean Ukraine just empties of people and and has no economy and no standard of living it's just such a sad thing yeah um, one more quick point and then we'll go to the callers so thanks everyone for waiting and if you uh, want to jump in please do I know uh, I just saw one caller tell us to take some calls which we will do in a moment. Um, one thing that I and this is maybe slightly less serious, but I uh, still think it's somewhat notable, is that okay? So today, and I, t- I tweeted this earlier, but the Washington Post published a little article about this uh, pro-Ukraine trolling offensive that has gained steam uh, on on social media. I mean, I particularly seem to encounter it on Twitter, which is my main social media outlet, but I. Presumably, it's also elsewhere. And um, the people in this group, which they call themselves NAFO, I don't even know the exact oh, origins of that. Oh, they've been, they've been, they've been on, they've been. I don't know what it was, but they've been, they've been all over my Twitter account too. Yeah, yeah. I mean, this they go, in the Washington Post. Okay. This is in the Washington Post. Yeah, it's, it's it's a laudatory article. Like they're praising. Is it, is it a, the, a, a slang for homosexual? Is it a homosexual slur? Is that what F is? Uh, I th- <laughs> I think it refers to them calling themselves fellas, like. Oh, I thought they short for fellows. Fags. I thought they were. I thought it was fags. I thought because they had like gay flags. <laughs> Maybe for some it is. I don't know. Um, <laughs> but you have this so, so, fellows organization. Yeah, something like that. Yeah. I don't know. Who cares? But the but the, so the Washington Post, you know, finally wrote an article about this trolling agglomeration, um, seemingly in part because. You know, within the past week or so, apparently, you know, like the, the uh, Decra- Ukraine defense minister like uh, publicly endorsed them um, and, you know, cheered them on. I mean, who knows? I, I'm not asserting that they, this was state 
originated in any way. I don't have evidence for that. But now it's at least stayed back in the sense that it has this official endorsement from the Ukraine Defense Ministry. Adam Kinzinger, with, oh my God. Oh yeah, Adam Kinzinger just... declared himself a member. <laughs> um, Russia says lame. Russia, you look at embassy. <laughs> you see this? You see this in the post story. They have Russia like making fun of it. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so anyway, you know, just to clarify right off the bat, I'm not claiming I'm a victim or I'm, you know, my uh, my emotional well-being has been destroyed permanently by trolls attacking me on Twitter, right? I can deal with that. It's kind of a constant of my online existence now for many years. Um, but, you know, they, they are pretty, you know, persistent and, uh, and, and, and vicious, which is fine. I mean, it's their prerogative. Um, and they are clearly, you know, coordinated in the sense that it's not just natural, it's not just organic engagement, right? They, they seem to have, you know, some uh, off-platform organizing mechanism where, you know, they can kind of, you know, uh, call a group to, you know, swarm one particular person or, you know. And, and it's just, the, the reason I bring this up is not because this is particularly novel or um, notable on its own, but just because it's worth reflecting on the fact that for several years, a core prong of the so-called foreign interference that the U.S. The US democracy was beset with vis-a-vis Russia was that they had you know, polluted social media with their memes – and they're inauthentic trolling accounts and what have you. And they were, you know, tricking American voters into voting for, you know, destabilizing candidates and whatever. Um, I like bringing this up occasionally because it just underscores the ridiculousness of the rhetoric around this stuff. But Gerald Nadler in 2018, went on MSNBC, who actually you know, just won his uh, election in New York against a fellow incumbent, Carolyn Maloney. So he's going to be back in Congress. He's going to be one of the senior most members of the House for the uh, Democrats. And he was uh, you know, already the chairman of the Judiciary Committee and, and whatnot. And uh, he helped to lead impeachment proceedings and so forth. And this is just one example that stuck with me. I'm sure I could find a thousand others in about five minutes. Uh, but he went on Chris Hayes' show on MSNBC in, in early 2018 declared that Russian Facebook memes and Twitter trolls were equivalent in their the severity of the danger they posed to Pearl Harbor. And he didn't, like, laugh afterwards. I mean, he had, that was what he said with a straight face. And now, you know, just a couple of years later, we have, uh, you, know, you know, tributes being published in the Washington Post and elsewhere to what is – what they even will – admit is a foreign-backed, quote-unquote, troll army. That's, what the, that's the phrase the Washington Post used. And somehow now this is not foreign interference anymore. It, it's actually something to be celebrated. So, you know, not that I think at this point most people, or at least the people who would listen to a call and chat with us, really thought that that whole narrative circa, you know, 2016 to 2020 was particularly sincere in the threat that was claimed to be posed by these uh, online interlopers uh but now that there's a you know this you know, now that there's like targeted harassment being in, you know, conducted by this this one particular online trolling formation now it's great and now it doesn't you know it send shivers down the spine of people who are anxious to preserve democracy or whatever so if nothing else it just show it just like proves with some degree of finality <laughs> the total yeah. stupidity of, of that <laughs> narrative 
I think we've learned. Yeah, I think we've learned there's double standards in these things. Yes. Okay. Anyway, let's go to some callers now. Uh, Pierre, who I think will probably have some critical remarks for us, but that's good and actually welcome. Hi, can you hear me? Yes. I'm yep. Okay. Thanks. So I, I, I was debating on whether to comment on your remark about, you know, CNN coverage regarding Trump, or I had some thoughts on the whole idea of right wing economic populism. So I wasn't sure which one. You could do both. You could you could talk merge about, yeah, the two you if you want. Okay. Well, just quickly on the whole CNN thing, I think criticizing CNN um, for covering Trump is like criticizing moths for going to a light. Um, yeah. You're going to, you're going to get a good analogy that. actually. I think that, you know, he's obviously someone that gets ratings and the whole idea that I get, a, you know, I see a lot of criticism of CNN and I think cable news in general is bad, but there seems to be this focus on CNN and MSNBC. And I just don't see that kind of focus on Fox, at least from, you know, a sector of the online. Which one of us said, did we say CNN shouldn't have covered Trump or anything like that? I don't remember saying that. Well, there seems to be a lot of criticism. Well, I said, are you referring to like when I said, if you pull up like the CNN YouTube page or something, it tends to be 18 out of the last 20 videos are about Trump in August of 2022. Yeah. I mean, I did say that, but it, it wasn't even like criticism. It was just sort of observing the farcicality of it. Yeah, I mean, it, it, but I, I just don't see – I understand in general cable news is going to cover the you know lowest hanging fruit. Um, but that's universal for cable news. I don't view it as being like a serious venue of journalism. But I, I agree – but I think that's the same for Fox. I mean no one's – Fox isn't the highest rated uh, TV show because they have a higher journalistic standards than CNN. I mean that's just not the case. Um, also like, as far as like right now, I mean, he's under federal investigation. He teases, you know, running again in 2024. Um, and then in general, he just makes a lot of outlandish comments. So I just don't see how that's shocking, but you know, I mean, just, just to be clear, I'm not saying it's somehow unjustified for any media outlet to cover Trump. Clearly Trump remains a relevant figure in a host of respects, not just the FBI raid and the subsequent legal proceedings that he's now enmeshed in, but that he keeps intervening in Republican primaries and seems to have a decisive influence. And yeah, of course, that's going to be covered. And I don't begrudge it mm-hmm. necessarily. Um, yeah. But it is also worth stepping back and just observing the kind of fundamental ridiculousness of how a former president is generally gets more airtime and is covered more vigorously than the current president. I mean, and I'm not even saying that it's 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 like the the logic for doing so is in every case unsustainable, but it is like a new thing and you know, it's uh sort of again a bit farcical at times, especially, and I know like I, I think the metaphor that you used with CNN and the moths going to light is actually pretty apt. Um, but you know, when on any given day this summer, you could go on to, you could, if you flipped on CNN, not that I do this habitually flipped on CNN in the, you know, during any news program or look at their online coverage on YouTube or on social media. And it's just like 90% Trump. 
Mm-hmm. I mean, there is something called proportionality. And I know that CNN is not the be-all, end-all. And yeah, I mean, you could make criticisms as well. I mean, I, I, when, uh, after the 2016 election, when Trump was in office, and, fought, and like Sean Hannity would do like 12 segments a night on Hillary Clinton, that was also absurd. Um, so, you know, this isn't a phenomenon that's unique to CNN necessarily. Maybe it's just about the fundamental like frivolity of cable news. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, you know, it is uh, – I think it's just – it's worth remarking upon. Yeah. I think a lot of the things I comment on are things that I would totally bring up if like Glenn Greenwald, if I had him on the line. I think that, you know, I follow <laughs> what he says and I think he's – Using me as a proxy? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Maybe a little bit. Um, as far as – I just want to get your take on this whole idea that the working class is going to the Republican Party – at least, you know, gradually. I brought this up on a different show recently, and they made some good points in that populism doesn't just mean expansion of the welfare state. It's also immigration, it's cultural issues. But there seems to be this idea among some on the online left and some, I don't know if I would call them left, but, you know, independent thinkers who say, oh, well, the Democratic Party has betrayed the working class and economic uh, policies and the right wing that's this is a promising avenue to enact stuff and it's you know um and there's a migration of latinos into the republican party i'm not contesting that there's that there's some trends in that direction but i would contest that it has anything to do with economic policy um and whether they actually have their best economic interests at heart can I, can, I, can I stop you for a second just to ask a clarifying question? So you don't dispute that descriptively – I mean forget whether this is a good or bad thing or whether it's justified or unjustified. You don't dispute that just a matter of like empirical observable reality, the Republican Party is generally be trending in the direction of being relatively more working class in its orientation and the Democratic Party is trending in the opposite direction. Like whether you think that's good or bad or yeah. the people you know who are – who compose who comprise that trend or reasoning in a way that you would endorse is sort yeah. of separate you think just as a empirical descriptive matter that's accurate well i think it's overplayed uh, i'm not saying there's no evidence of it if you look at the cross tabs i think more of people who voted who made more than i can't tell you the exact numbers but people who were making more than maybe i think it was like 100,000 or something like that or Upper middle class, they voted more for Trump, and people who made less than that voted more for Biden. So, on the aggregate, maybe there's some trending, but that's just trends, you know, rates of increase. But overall, you're not seeing levels. Um, well, I mean, I have I have a report on I have a report on this here. Let me put it in the in the chat. Um, you're right um, that you know the TLDR. Uh, is that yes? Economics has very little to do um, with how people vote. It, it's a poor predictor of voting. I mean, race matters a lot. Um, cultural attitudes matter a lot. And so yes, if there's the degree, there's this realignment. It's between college versus non-college sort of you know uh, class. If you're a, if you're a rich person who never went to college, you're probably a Republican. If you're 
uh, if you're a uh, poor person who is highly educated, like say like a PhD in women's studies or something, I mean you're likely to be a, a Democrat. So it's <laughs> it's it's uh, yeah that that what your what your instinct here is is right. They just look at the crosstabs and you can see that uh, economics is just not a good predictor of how people vote. Yeah. Well, let me Pierre. Let me let me just give you um, an interesting figure here. This came to mind because of the, the subject you raised, but I went and found. So after the 2020 election, I sort of tabulated certain totals to try to see if I could discern any trends along these lines. And uh, because I'm from New Jersey originally, and I have uh, probably an unusually robust knowledge of like New Jersey micro geography, um, I uh, sort of ran the numbers for for di- like different municipalities, you know, in, in relation to like median household income and that sort of thing. And so in uh, Newark, New Jersey, for example, which is a very you know, it's it actually improved somewhat over the past couple of years, but generally speaking, it's a very socioeconomically deprived city, heavily, uh, heavily black, um, and um, you know, uh, more or less a Democratic Party stronghold, right? But in Newark, New Jersey, uh, compa- in 2020 compared to 2016, Trump's raw vote total, which is, I, I grant, just one metric, right? But Trump's raw, and, and you saw, I'm only giving this as an example because you see this, you saw this trend in 2020 replicated throughout the country pretty much. In, uh, in Newark, New Jersey in 2020, Trump's raw vote to- total increased by 84, 84% from 2016, whereas Biden's raw vote total declined 5% compared to Hillary Clinton. Meanwhile, in nearby, a nearby wealthy town, Called North Caldwell, which happens to be where the Soprano family lived in the show. But I grew up at a, I grew up in an adjacent town, so I was just familiar with it. Uh, Trump won North Caldwell narrowly in 2016, two points by 2.7%, whereas Biden won it by 5.2% in 2020. Mm-hmm. And as recently as 2012, North Caldwell had voted for Romney by 23%. So it was a staunchly Republican town in 2012, at least going on presidential voting behavior. And by 2020, there had been a fairly dramatic shift. And that seems to accord with this general thesis and the general trend lines, which I don't think are – maybe some overplay them, but they exist enough that it's worth engaging with them, um, that you know, these affluent suburban areas mm-hmm. are pretty much trending democratic – and less affluent areas that, you know, mostly white areas, but not exclusively because even, you know, black areas, it's not a huge percentage of the vote, but it did trend in the direction of the Republic of, of Republicans in 2020 um, are increasingly uh, voting Republican. So, mm-hmm. yeah, I mean, you, you can debate the margins and you can debate the wider meaning, but there is something empirically there that I think is, is yeah. plainly existent and, and that ought, you know, ought to be assessed you know, with that in mind. Yeah, I think two things. I think the Democrats um, are hurting by not moderating uh, culturally. Um, I think that's a big thing. But one thing that I think is not talked about enough is how much of this is unique to Trump being on the ballot. Um, When you take Trump off the ballot, I don't know what I don't know what the numbers were in 2018 when he wasn't on the ballot or at least officially on the ballot. Um, But it'd be interesting to look that up. But but yeah, I think those things are important. I, you know, I'm of the left liberal persuasion, so I want to see liberals do better with the white working class. And I think another big thing is the whole, I, I think, and this has been talked about, but Latinos 
are increasingly identifying as white and or at least not as a minority per se and i think when you get that shift in cultural identity you're going to get more and and then white and then people who identify as white are more culturally conservative and vote republican you're going to see some of that shift so i think democrats you know are hurting because they're not moderating culture. Yeah, I'm sort of curious. What, what do you mean by that? Like, what specifically? Moderating culturally? Yeah, like what? What? What would you want them to do to moderate culturally? I would like them to shift their rhetoric from racial equity per se to more like broadening the economic up, um, uplifting, less in terms of race and more in terms of class. But that's not inherently moderate. That's just changing like the frame of reference, right? That's not inherently any more or less moderate. Well, okay, maybe what I'm saying by moderate is is less talk about um, systemic racism, which I think exists, but I think it's not as unifying as, say, you know, appeal. You're going to lose it. You have to win white working class voters back because that's how the Senate map is. You know, Republicans have conquer geography and Democrats have more people, but that's not how the Senate works and that disadvantages them in the Electoral College. So they have to moderate or maybe not moderate is the right word, but they have to put out signals that are more appealing to that. Yeah. Yeah. Last point on this and we'll move on. But I. you always have an interesting contribution, Pierre, so I, I appreciate that. But I don't know if you were listening when I referenced that old uh, Schumer quote from 2016. Um, but if anyone was overplaying this trend, it was him at the time, right? Because he said, quote, and I'll just restate it quickly, for every blue-collar Democrat we lose in western Pennsylvania, we will pick up two moderate Republicans in the suburbs in Philadelphia. Mm-hmm. And you can repeat that in Ohio and Illinois and Wisconsin. Now, again, like I said before, what Schumer sort of died, you know, Schumer's prognosis there didn't translate into a Hillary Clinton victory in the Electoral College, but he he did have his, you know, his uh, finger on something that was real in terms of the trend lines of the party's respective coalitions. So, I mean, do you think what Schumer said there has been borne out? And if so, wouldn't that have some fairly indelible impact on just like the nature of the two parties' compositions, irrespective of whether Trump? is like the leading figure of the Republican Party, which, yeah, I mean, of course, that has some effect, but, you know, parties always to some degree orient themselves in relation to, you know, their party leader, whether informally or formally. Trump, I guess, now is informal, but, you know, when he was president, you know, that, that had a lot, that, even if some of it was tied up in Trump as a persona, it still had, I think it's going to have long-lasting impacts on, like, the party's, um, you know, a, a kind of coalitional mm-hmm. composition. Yeah, I I agree. I have concerns about the, the composition. Um, and I think I do want to see liberals kind of urge this older leadership out and the newer leadership in because of style, you know, stylistically or aggressiveness. Um, I just don't see it as much. However, you think, you think Hakeem Jeffries is going to mod- moderate culturally compared to Nancy Pelosi? Well, that's my concern. Yes, his new leadership necessarily is is gonna not necessarily gonna lead it to be more moderate culturally. But I, I, I do before before I sign off, I do really want to get your opinion on this whole economic populism argument and the whole idea that like, okay, if people you know are gonna instead of voting blue no matter who, maybe the right 
wing economic popu- uh, populists are the way to go and to foster uh, policies in that in, in that party. But the thing is that, that confuses me is that you do have like idiosyncrat or, you know, random types of things that are kind of, you know, very rare, like things like Holly will do one or two things and um, stuff like that. But if you're talking about policies that expand the social welfare state, and I understand that, like, what Democrats do is obviously not sufficient. But if you're going to, if that's your criteria, and you want to vote for, and you want policies that are expanding the social welfare state, why, what evidence do you have that the right wing, or that Republicans are going to be the party that's doing that? I mean, if you're talking, like, for example, minimum wage. Yeah, yeah, okay, let me, let me, let me I, I know what you're getting at, and I, I agree with you in this sense, which is that, you know, until further notice... I simply don't believe that Republic, the Republican Party as a whole, notwithstanding whatever idiosyncrasies certain Republican figures might espouse as to economics, um, I simply don't believe uh, – I, I have no reason to believe that in aggregate they're going to do anything other than what they did when they got into power after the 2016 election. When Remember, every, Republicans control every branch of government. And what was their signature legislation that they finally passed, notwithstanding Trump's you know, heterodoxies on economics and how he was you know, running as a Republican who was like deviating from the, the Reagan coalition orthodoxies and such. What they did was they passed a corporate tax cut. So you know, until further notice, I don't believe that they're gonna, they would do anything differently if they were to gain power. Um, yeah, so I just don't Richard, see what do you why... think of that? Yeah. No, you're absolutely right. It's a, it's a sort of an online thing. And it's very weird. These people, Even these people who claim to be economic populists, they still support people who are, um, who are pretty right-wing on economics. And Josh Hawley doesn't vote much different from other Republicans. So it's all fake, yeah, if you want. If you believe in a expansive uh, social welfare programs, yeah, the Democrats are still your party. There's no real realignment here. Yep. Okay. Well, that's uh, so. There's some maybe counterintuitive agreement for you there, Pierre. All right. All right but we're going right. to move on. Thanks for okay. the contribution. Uh, Chris, you're up. Hey, what's up, guys? <clears throat> hey. 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 Um, yeah, I, I've got some thoughts on Ukraine, but first, I just want to um, just say something about the whole, uh, you know, Biden being a, a political genius and, and stuff. Well, I didn't and say I, that. So well, maybe his okay. shrewdness is underappreciated at times. Well, I was gonna. Well, I was gonna say I actually, I actually did not think that for a long time, but like recently, I've started to agree with you. And um, I was thinking back about this whole um, forgiving student loans thing, and I think it's actually kind of smarter than people even realize because I guess the um, consensus, like, um, like appraisal of it, is that it's um, like. Uh, political patronage right it's he's rewarding um this group that he needs to keep their loyalty but but what way i was thinking about it is um it doesn't look like patronage to me because i think that when you see patronage it's like when it's like when the president is signing legislation in the oval office or in some other big room in the white house and he's got like all the people behind him and like he's actually doing stuff and this time um they just i guess they just floated a proposal and that's all it was. It wasn't even really getting anything done. Um, so it was. I think it's it's not even uh, patronage. It's more like a divide and conquer thing, where he was basically um, just keeping the uh, like the leftists and the progressives and um, you know like the the DSA type people. He's kind of just um, getting them to fall in line. 
And it seems to have worked because he basically took um, like this really big, this thing that was really important to them. You know, it was like up there with, um, uh, you know, Medicare for all and um, like these other really big programs they wanted. Like they wanted uh, free, free tuition, free college, um, <clears throat> like big reform. And he kind of, he kind of just like current thinged it so that it's, um, you know, okay, you guys, everyone argue about it for a week. And then at the end of it, you guys are going to have to come to the conclusion that you're going to stay on board this ship. Um, so I don't know. I think, I think it was, I think it was actually pretty smart. I, and he's, it seems, I don't, and I don't know how smart he is, but it's like the people around him, they seem to be um, making the right calls to keep their coalition together, so to speak. Yeah, I agree. I agree with you. Um whether you call it patronage or not, what it clearly is, is an unusually direct and immediately perceptible change, you know, improvement in the material conditions of a core constituency. Most governmental action is much more indirect and like you need to make arguments showing people how their station in life has improved materially based on this or that policy. Whereas this student loan forgiveness, it's going to immediately show up on you know the uh, <laughs> the bottom lines of the bills that people have to pay, and they're going to attribute yeah. it to Biden. So I think it's actually pre- it's actually very smart um, uh, because, or I, I don't know, I, I can't say with certainty that it's very smart politically on a whole. Like maybe there could be a backlash to it that overrides whatever benefit he gets from it. You know, in terms of voters who are now motivated as a result of the announcement. Um, but, you know, you could easily imagine that, you know, uh, amongst a certain demographic of vote, because Biden was doing very poorly, almost historically poorly for a Democrat in recent polling among younger voters. I mean, they were trending pretty drastically Republican. Um, and whereas, you know, in, in, re- in recent history, that was diametrically opposite. Um, so to, for, for a, a constituency that may have been flagging somewhat for him to now get this direct material benefit and yeah. attributed specifically to Biden. And, and seems like, I mean, the, 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 the political logic seems to me, you know, pretty clear cut. And, and, and it's crazy. He didn't actually have to give them anything either. He just kind of, he kind of played them, you know, cause they haven't gotten anything yet. It's just, it's just kind of floating out there. But um, yeah. yeah. And, and on the Ukraine thing, hold on. I just want uh, Richard, you have a thought on the student loan thing? Yeah, I don't, I don't know. I mean, people will, I mean, the people, some people will directly benefit from it. Also plays into a narrative that Democrats are the party of, you know, rich, spoiled, uh, college kids who, you know, are good for nothing. Um, the, so it's hard to, it's hard to say. I'll, you know, we'll have to see what the polls say. Um, I was, uh, interested and, you know, pleasantly surprised to see this was basically attacked across the political spectrum. This policy was attacked by the Washington Post and uh, the Wall Street Journal. Uh, a lot of moderate people I, I saw on Twitter thought this was a bad idea. There was, you know, the right, supposed right wing populist. So every, everyone was, everyone, I mean, everyone you'd expect to be against, you know, everyone who you might think, you know, besides like obviously the far left people, just like any government, you know, redistributionist policy. Um, it was you know, very, very unpopular. I don't know if that'll have. Um, an eff- effect or not. Um, but yeah, we'll, we'll see. I mean, my, uh, you know, my view seems, it seems to be, seems to be sort of a wash so far, but we'll be time to see how it shakes out. Don't you think though, and again, I grant this is just against speculative punditry, but sometimes, hey, what the hell? Um, don't you think the people who thought that the, the Democratic Party was 
catering toward, you know, out of touch, stuffy, overeducated elites probably would have thought that anyway, irrespective of the student loan forgiveness. You could say, whereas, that about you could say like, you could say people who like abortion rights, you know, the Dobbs didn't change anything because those people were already with the Democrats and with the, and so like, it doesn't matter. But the Dobbs, Dobbs decision had a reason, but, but the Dobbs, Dobbs, there's a, there's a reason, there's like a directly dis- discernible reason why the Dobbs decision would have motivated those voters to vote at a higher rate, whereas they might have been apathetic if it hadn't happened. And there's a similar thing happening potentially here with the student loan forgiveness. Like, yeah, the people who are having their loans forgiven might have been a democratic skewing constituency anyway, but if they were sort of apathetic and tuned out of politics and now they're getting this direct, tangible, material benefit, don't you think it could mobilize them? Whereas I'm not sure who this mobilizes in terms of the opponents that wouldn't have been mobilized anyway. I don't know. I mean, some could make people just a little bit angrier. I mean, there's the most people don't have student loans and maybe, you know, some people do well, and maybe those people care and then the people but, who don't don't the, care that but the much. Beauty of it, the beauty of it was that he just current thinged it. It's only they they only it only became a thing for like a week, maybe two weeks. Well, something and, those people could forget by November then. That's then that's the same problem. But I but but I think that 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 plays that plays more to the uh, to the Democrat side, like the um, the because now they're gonna ha- now they have a, now they have a reason for <clears throat> the left side to kind of like self enforce each other. Um, you got to stay on the ship, kind of thing. I don't know. That, that, that's hey, what, what was your but, Ukraine um, point? Yeah. Well, um, I think it is kind of moving to a critical phase because and it's because of the um, information blackout that uh, Kiev's doing um, when they did their their kind of like counteroffensives in um, Lysychansk and Severodonetsk. Um, they were getting they they had they sent in the media with with those guys um, in Mariupol. They were still getting a lot of information coming out, but you know this time the it seems like this is there's a lot riding on this one. And did you guys hear about um, the uh, the Russian Ministry of Defense said that they even tried to like do a commando raid on the uh, nuclear power plant at uh, Zaporizhia, and um, it I mean I don't know if that really happened, but they um, they asked the, uh, the spokesperson for the IAEA, and um, and he said he had a very diplomatic answer, which was he didn't really confirm it or deny it, but <clears throat> said that uh, he he, he uh, oh he thanked the uh, Russians for providing security, and it it sounded to me like he was ready for the question at the very least, um, which makes which kind of makes me think that it did happen. So I think that Ukraine, I think they're really going for broke here. I think that they believe um, this is their last shot because as, as the winter comes in, it's just going to be a lot harder for them to do military operations. And it'll be a little bit harder for Russia too, but they can, but they can still conduct operations. They, they have a pretty, they still have a pretty strong army. Um, yeah, I, I did see this. Um, for people who aren't aware, there's this uh, guy, Stefan, Stefan Dujaric. D-U-J-A-R-I-C, who's a spokesperson for the U.N. Secretary General, who said, quote, this was today after they had arrived at the Zaporizhia nuclear plant for the first time. He said, quote, I'm glad And this was in response to a question. It seemed like it might have been from a Russian journalist, but I'm not sure. But anyway, he said, quote, I'm glad the Russian military did what they had to do to keep our inspectors safe, which, of course, Begs the question, and I know people misuse the phrase "begs the question" a lot, but this does that does beg the question. Keep safe, are inspectors safe from whom? 
Because there's always this like weirdly deliberate and conspicuous ambiguity around this whole issue of the Zaporizhia power plant in terms of who's actually like which country's armed forces are actually posing the most direct threat that could potentially lead to a nuclear uh, disaster. Um, and you know, there's debate over whether Russia is apparently shelling itself, given they're the occupying force in the plant. Um, but you know, but but, but media, media outlets, media outlets that at the drop of a hat would be quick to assign culpability to Russia. Instead, now when they're talking about this nuclear plant issue, take on this sort of pose of weird vagueness as to who's actually firing the shells in question and it seems yeah. like you know this is maybe another example of that uh you know willful uh, ambiguity yeah, yeah. anyway yeah richard so. richard and a thought uh no i was i didn't actually follow the visit um that closely uh Michael, I, I, I'm gonna you gotta have go. to not not right now, but I'm just gonna say let's let's sort of just go, get through wrap this. Wrap it up. Uh, okay. Yeah. Let's yeah. go. Uh, okay. Remaining two. Uh, Eric and yeah, let's get von Neumann too. All right. Eric and mathematician, please uh, try to be somewhat brief. I know you can do it. Eric's a very smart guy, so he'll uh, he has that ability. So is von Neumann, man, smartest man in <laughs> history. All right. Um, you guys mentioned um, that historian uh, Adam. No Lee. musical intro. You you bypassed that. Oh, I'm sorry. Um, hi, this is Colin, and musical gathering of experts. Richard Hanania. Nicely done, as always. Well, I just wanted to mention I I enjoy in terms of historical works Ian Kershaw. I don't know if you guys have ever read him. But he uh-huh. did some great stuff on just the whole history of Europe, and but especially of yeah, Nazi Germany. And so um, I think um, for a historical parallel, I think a lot of the generals and people who were under Trump may, might have thought of themselves as playing a, an Albert Speer type role uh, in terms of uh, trying to, you know, uh, keep the dictator from doing his worst. But <laughs> in any case, um, that's just a little historical comment. But I guess I did want to ask about the topic about Dr. Oz. Um, yeah. Yes. And um, so it would seem to me like, you know, uh, the reasonable Democratic Party might have to be making some considerations as to, you know, if you have a candidate who is unable, you know, John Fetterman, who I like, but if he's, you know, had a stroke and he can't, you know, what are they going to do? And he can't debate? I mean, uh, what's, can you give us, fill, fill me in on that? You know, it was just, uh, I was just at the, uh, I was just, I, had like a semi-vacation this past week at the Jersey Shore. So I was in the Philadelphia media market and the ads for the Senate race are just nonstop even now. It's in there. They're actually pretty funny. Like there's, you know, the ones that they're mocking Dr. Oz for like hawking, you know, fake uh, diet pills and stuff in the past and how he bought nine homes in uh, everywhere but Pennsylvania, like New Jersey, Palm Beach and Turkey and uh, then, like, basically the reply ad is – it's sort of funny because Dr. Oz has this one ad where he's you know, speaking directly to the camera in this, you know, monologue, you know, very nicely lit where he uh, recalls going to medical school in Philadelphia. So I guess to, like, give the impression that he actually is a longtime Pennsylvania resident or I guess some longstanding attachment to Pennsylvania, whereas he hadn't been a resident until – very, very recently, and is like the quintessential, almost comically on point uh, carpetbagger. So, yeah, I mean, I have seen uh, 
so I saw those the, those ads, and I don't know. It, it is it is strange because if uh, Fetterman, so Fetterman just he just withdrew from a debate, right? Um, and he he recently went out and he, he recently went, like well he, he well he 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 stated that he was not going to participate in an upcoming debate with Oz mm-hmm. um, for sometime in September, and uh, he did. Um, he did have a rally recently. Of course, he didn't take any questions from the media. But even during that rally, like it was pretty uncomfortable because he was clearly still dealing with the after effects of the stroke. Um, but yeah, it is a very strange situation because like nobody seems to be ringing any alarm bells about it. And maybe he could still prevail electorally, but like there's going to be like a half mentally competent. Well, from CNN, CNN, even CNN did a segment on um, Fetterman not not being right. I mean, they they did a segment that people are talking about. You know, like they showed that clip from his speech where he's like, uh, you know, people just uh, want uh, safe work. I mean, it's really bad. I mean, it's really really bad. You could tell yeah. And Richard, by the way, I did name this call-in segment um, after a tweet I saw of yours where you said, where you uh, noted that Dr. Oz apparently revived somebody on a plane. <laughs> it's such a funny story. Did that happen? Did, when did that happen? Was that recent? It, yeah, it was, a few, if we, it was on Newsmax. Um, and it's, you have to see this story because it's so funny. They said there was a guy, and then, the, and like, it seems, it seems staged. I mean, people are saying it's staged, and it seems prob- likely that it probably was. But then, like, they have a quote from Dr. Oz. He's like, oh, he was probably dehydrated. When you were on a plane, you drink caffeine. And so he just had, like, this paragraph ready of, like, you know, medical advice nonsense. And it's like it was like a segment for his show. So if you look at this Newsmax article, you look at, like, the Oz quotes. They're just, like, so fake. And it was so determined. It was so, like, you know, it was just, like, so perfectly sta- uh, perfectly staged. Um who knows if it was it was fake or not? He, you know, he he might just you know thought of that stuff off the top of it, his head, uh, but it is a fu- I mean it's a funny contrast. Fetterman, I become fascinated with Fetterman. I mean he is a strange uh, strange character, um, and you know there's a lot weird about him. And if he gets into the Senate, it's going to be a very strange thing to see him walk around in his you know basketball shorts and and inability to function like you know going around being just said it so it's a well it's I, a I, I i i on uh you know from from october to like april i i have the same outfit as him so i can't begrudge him <laughs> yeah, the, the the hoodie and the basketball shorts yeah me too but I would, I would i dress i would dress better if i was in his position apparently he only owns one suit and only ever wore it because and you know, his, when he presides over the Twitter. Pennsylvania legislature as lieutenant governor, like there's some actual like formal requirement that he has to wear a suit. Otherwise, he would never wear it. You know, somebody was pointing out in the on Twitter today that he was um, before he was lieutenant governor, he was mayor of a town. The town's population was two thousand in twenty ten. Under Fetterman, it dropped to like one thousand. So that's that's the extent of his political. Well, uh, that's how he, that's how he. Became, I mean, he he did like sort of a Cory Booker type thing, but in miniature, right? Because Cory Booker. When he was mayor of Newark, to have built up consciously a public profile well beyond the confines of Newark itself, and actually a lot of people within the town resented him for it. I mean, I covered this at the time because I happened to grow up nearby, um, where you know he would like be appearing on Oprah and he would do like speaking tours and he would appear at like you know tech conferences and he had he like, had a documentary and stuff and Fetterman did a, sim- a similar thing where like when he became mayor of this town he you know, he self-generated this like publicity that revolves around him so that you can go see old clips of him like appearing on Stephen Colbert and stuff on the Colbert report and, and what did he um, what did he supposedly do 
when he was the mayor? Well, he it, it was this it was this uh, you know uh, depopulating old industrial town in western Pennsylvania, and he was going to try to revitalize it. So he brought in. It's funny because like he now he's like a progressive icon of sorts, but he 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 like um, he tried to like use the nonprofit route to bring in new resources to the city. And, um, you know, so he was using like, extra governmental tactics to try to, you know, bolster this little town and then the, you do uh, use it as marketing to like raise his public profile and it worked. Um, and then it raised even further because then he endorsed Bernie Sanders in, uh, in 2016 when not that many public officials did. So that, you know, automatically sort of boosted him within certain activist groups. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's, I, I've been aware of him for years, actually. Um, you remember yeah, when Fetterman was on The Real Time with Bill Maher? Uh, I don't know. I don't know if I saw well, that, but I can imagine what happened. Um, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> Fetterman says, Fetterman's sitting there with Nick Gillespie from Reason Magazine, and Fetterman says, well, as the mayor of the poorest uh, you know, city in Pennsylvania, and Nick Gillespie says, oh, you must be so proud of that. And Fetterman's like, yeah, we'll take it outside. Yeah. <laughs> well, well, unlike uh, unlike you, Richard, I'm not ready to declare that uh, Doctor Oz is a greater contributor to society than than Fetterman because I mean, Doctor Oz is just ridiculous. He was like he was one of these people who was like plucked out, plucked by Oprah into some sort of like medical this guidance so role. I'm looking at Fetterman's Wikipedia. My God, this stuff is weird. He had a pub, He had a big fight with a strip club and tried to chase them out of town. He chased down a black jogger. There's, this is a weird, yeah, weird and character. In the, Pencil, in the primary this yeah. year, in the Pennsylvania primary this year when he was running against other Democrats, that they tried to use that incident against him as like he was supposedly racial profiling or something, but you know, he claims he wasn't. He, he was uh, you know, just taking the law into his own hands to uh, protect his community. He brought so. in a celebrity chef into the stuff. Yeah, stuff like that. <laughs> like, if you bring in a celebrity chef, <laughs> like, so you're... Stupid. It's just like, it was like a marketing campaign. And I don't, but the, I don't, again, I don't... the population shrank by half. It went from, like, 2000 to 1000. So, obviously, whatever he was doing wasn't working. Yeah. <laughs> well, anyway, I, 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 whatever, whatever his shortcomings, I'm not, uh, I'm not prepared to say that Dr. Oz is, like, a better person. <laughs> Um, all right, thanks, Eric, and uh, let's uh, wrap up with uh, Always, who I'm sure will have a very interesting, uh, challenging question to confront us with. Oh, uh, I wanted to ask um, Michael mostly, what do you think about this lawsuit against Harvard? Uh, do you think there should be affirmative action at all? You're just obsessed with these same issues. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I don't know. I think, it, I think it's a important topic. I want to hear what your thoughts are. You want to hear what I th- – is that, is that because, like, that's a question that would probably more naturally go to Richard, but you think it would be, like, funny to get me to comment on it instead? Well, I, I'm sure – like, I, I, my guess is that you would be support – you would support replacing racial preferences with socioeconomic preferences. And I know Richard just wants to, like, remove I, all of them. Yeah, I think, I think uh, Neumann is interested in your politics. He's trying to draw it out. Of okay. Um, you know, I, I, haven't, I haven't studied whatever the pending uh, cases now before the Supreme Court, so I can't can't really comment on the specifics without having you know, read it, which I guess I will, just in case you try to press me on it again. Um, you know, it's funny because in high school, right? I can recall like there was there was, maybe it might have been a history class or social studies class or something when you had to like debate a topical issue that was like the assignment and affirmative action 
was one of the things that had a debate. We had a debate. I remember thinking that I had a breakthrough in coming to a resolution on the subject because I I said to myself, you know what? Maybe you don't have to have formal racial quotas because you could just make it socioeconomic and that will organically benefit racial minorities anyway because they tend to be socially and economic, uh, socio, socioeconomically disadvantaged. So that's a perfect solution. I thought I, I remember thinking I was brilliant because I had this uh, breakthrough of, uh, of uh, policy prescriptions. Um, but yeah, I mean, I guess in general that, that makes sense to me. Um, I don't know. I, I guess uh, unlike Richard, maybe I don't, I don't find that I have really firm convictions on it one way or another. I do think, you know, Classic racial quotas probably are not especially tenable right now, but I also don't have a whole uh, have a, much of a problem with diversifying the milieu of college students who attend elite universities. Now, in practice, that probably is skewed along other dimensions that make it sort of ridiculous. Um, you know, given the the preoccupations of like the College, college administrators who now like, tend to populate those organizations. But you know, in principle, I don't have a problem with it. You know, granting, you know, accepting as a stipulation that college is going to be, you know, higher education as it currently exists is going to continue existing. So you know, whatever holistic criticisms you might have of it, given that it exists, you probably would. It would probably be a decently good idea to you know diversify the student bodies along a certain axis that I think would probably be better if it were socioeconomic rather than, than racial. But I'm not going to pretend that I've, you know, I, I know some, some stuff about the issue, but I'm not going to pretend like this is like a driving I see. factor in my life. Okay. okay. Um, I can ask about, um, uh, uh, do you think we should about lift all sanctions and do you think we should end all foreign aid, including, I don't know, like, the, the, you, you, do you think we should defund the UN Relief and Works Agency? Do you think we should even exit the UN? Should we end all foreign aid? Should we um, end all sanctions? Uh, how far are you, how far are you along the isolationist front? Well, I don't want to be redundant. I apologize because I think this is more or less how I responded to you last week. Yeah, but yeah, I would wipe the I would wipe the slate clean. I would wipe the slate clean. And if somebody, I mean, I, the onus wouldn't be on me to say why this or that sanction ought to be removed. I would want to transfer the onus onto the people who are claiming that the policy is actually efficacious. Okay. Like with the Russia sanctions right now, it, I mean, it's ridiculous. I mean, R- Russia has greater income today than it did a year ago, in part because of the effects of the sanctions. So, like, where are the people who are so gung-ho about these sanctions and saying that democracy depends on it and no, all this, I, 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 you know, justifying it now? I mean, they, they just go silent. I, I, I agree. You know, sanctioning Russia to forever is stupid. But um, are you in favor of, like, withdrawing from the UN and stuff like that? I'm not actively in favor of withdrawing from the UN, no. Okay. You just don't care much that much about these sort of foreign aid you want to get rid of all um, it's, it's not that It's not that I don't care. It's that I am reluctant to, like, distill my views into this, like, binary yes or no policy choice. Like, mostly what I tend to do, and maybe this just, just goes to my position in, like, the public sphere to the extent that I'm a member of it, is that I tend to just be, I want to just, like, you know, evaluate the existing order and process it and synthesize it in a way that 
maybe exposes some of the inconsistencies and flaws rather than act like I have my own affirmative program that I want others to adopt. Like that's more like the role of politician okay. to me. So you're not like Richard, you know, R- Richard. I guess Richard, not. No, right. no, but we can, we can come together in harmony and do call in sessions anyway. R- R- if Richard, Richard would have like all these policy ideas for the president or whatever. Well, yeah, I mean, he runs a think tank, right? I don't, I don't <laughs> yeah, really particularly want to run a think tank. And all this stuff like that. Yep. All right. Thanks always. Uh, as your name suggests, you're always keeping us on our toes, so I appreciate that. All right, Richard, well, let's uh, call it quits for now, and we'll, uh, as always, like our guest here, uh, reconvene in the near future. Mm-hmm. All right. Good night, everyone. See you guys next bye week. Bye-bye. New Jersey's the best state. Well, on that we can agree. Bye. <laughs>